Well, welcome to this week's uh, Faith Roots podcast. And this week we're, we're going to do it over a few sections. I'm hoping to have something up each day of the week this week. We're going to be looking at uh, one whole book of the Bible, uh, the book of Song of Songs. If you've read some of my blog posts over the past few weeks, you'll have picked up that historically, and even today, there's been some controversy around this book, uh, about why it's in the Bible and what its purpose is. It is it simply a love song that is meant to teach us that it's okay to talk about human love and that even sexual love within the context of a marriage is a good thing from God. Or is it uh, an allegory? Uh, a story, a coded story intended uh, to portray Christ's love for his church. Now, in short, to quote a friend of mine, Ross Clark, who I believe is currently working on a commentary on, on Song of Songs. Uh, first of all, no, it's not, a, not an allegory. Secondly, yes, it is about Christ. And I've talked a bit about why on, 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 the, on, on the blog. I don't want to get into so much detail about that today, but just to highlight a couple of, of things here. Uh, why not an allegory? Uh, well, allegories tend, as I said, to be coded stories where you pick up each detail and you treat it not as a, a natural description of something, but as having this hidden meaning and you get lots and lots of hidden meaning so that the original story disappears under the code. He give you an example of something different where there's a, a, an allegorical treatment of it. Jesus tells a parable, he says, uh, if you have a mustard seed and plant it in the ground, it grows into this big plant. In fact, it will grow into a tree, this very small seed, and the birds will be able to shelter in its branches. And some people have taken that parable and said, the seed represents God's word. We, we know that. Uh, the, the, the tree is the, is the church. That's reasonable. Uh, but they've gone a bit further in that, and they've said, uh, because it's a big and great tree, that, that must be a bad thing. Uh, so this is Christendom. Uh, and then they've gone on and they've said, and we know from the parable of the sower that birds come and take the seed. So the birds must represent satanic forces. So this is a bad parable. The church has grown big and it's bad and the birds are uh, satanic leaders within the church. And then they try to work out who the satanic leaders might be. And in terms of the times in history when those things have been, uh, those interpretations have been made, they say, well, it's probably one of the popes, one or two of the popes. And what they've done is they've overinterpreted the parable, trying to find lots of hidden detail, which probably wasn't intended by Jesus. 
And the result that I want to suggest is that they've actually ended up changing the meaning of the parable. Because when you look at the parable in the context of all the other parables Jesus taught, there's no reason for us to think that it's a bad thing that God's kingdom is growing. God's kingdom is meant to grow. The tree is a good thing. And the birds there have not got this special symbolic meaning. It is, is very simply this. The kingdom will provide shade and shelter. And to be sure, the birds in the parable of the sower represent something bad. The birds are not always bad and sinister. You'll be relieved to know if you are a, a bird watcher, a bird lover. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus will tell us to consider the birds and to see the value that they have to God and to see that uh, birds get on with their life without worrying. So allegory, trying to take a word, each individual word, each individual phrase in isolation, turn it into a code, and so to lose the complete sense of the original story there. And generally speaking, scripture doesn't ask us to interpret it like that. That doesn't seem to be how Scripture functions. Uh, but that's what people have done with Scripture when they've struggled with its obvious meaning or its literal meaning is they've gone, well, let's, let's try and find some hidden code in there and they end up with all these weird and wonderful things. But I want to say to you that it is about Christ. Do we have permission to, to say that? And, and I've suggested in the blog articles that yes, we do. But why? Uh, well, because we read the Song of Songs in context. We look at it in the context of how the Old Testament overall handles the type of subject matter that the song touches on. And the song describes the relationship between two lovers. And when we look at the Old Testament, we discover that that story, that theme is present. It's present in the prophets, in Hosea, it's present in Ezekiel. Now, that imagery of a lover and his beloved is imagery that is constantly taken and applied to God's love for his people. Now, one of the reasons why people have struggled with Song of Songs is that it is one of those very few books of the Bible that doesn't seem to be quoted in the New Testament. But Jesus is not constantly saying, remember what Solomon said in Song of Songs. Uh, Hebrews doesn't quote it. Paul uh, doesn't use it to make a point. And so it seems at first glance to be absent from the New Testament. And that is a problem because we know how to interpret and how to apply the Old Testament by how the New Testament handles it. But what do we do with a book that doesn't seem to be quoted? Well, whilst it's not directly quoted. I want to suggest that the song is very much present in the New Testament. 
not quoted, but often alluded to, often referred to, often influencing other things in the New Testament. Where do we see it? Well, we see it when Jesus tells a parable of a, a bridegroom arriving for a wedding with bridesmaids attending. Uh, we see it when Jesus is at the wedding and chooses to act at the wedding with a miracle, with a sign to get people's attention. Uh, we see it in the book of Revelation where that imagery of the bridegroom returning for his bride and the great wedding feast of the Lamb dominates the book. But drawing from that Old Testament imagery of the groom, God and his bride, Israel, God's people, now focused in on the church as the bride of Christ. And it's in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, uh, Paul, teaching on marriage, uh, tells wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Um, Ephesians 5 verse 22, he is the saviour of the body. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave herself, gave himself for her. And you will notice that what husbands and wives are asked to do, this mutual submission, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives sacrificially with a willingness to die for her, you'll notice that it is constantly in reference to how Christ and the church function, who Christ and the church are. Because, says Paul, verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ. I'm talking about Christ and the church. In seeking to teach and to apply practical wisdom to how families are to function, how husbands and wives are to function, Paul goes back to this imagery again of God and his people, Christ and his church, the imagery of the bride and the bridegroom. And that's working two ways. First of all, it's working from that big theological picture, that big Christological picture of how Christ loves his church and how his church is meant to respond to him in worship and, and love, uh, to teach us something about normal human relationships here that we learn from the example. Uh, but also, because Paul says this mystery is about Christ and the church, that's what it's really all about. Uh, what Paul is saying is that marriage is one one of a number of pictures that God has given us to help us understand what his relationship to us is like. That's one of the jobs that marriage does. And that then becomes the basis for that practical uh, description of 
marriage. Now, now, fascinatingly, when we look at Ephesians, and by the way, my intention this week is not to do teaching on Ephesians 5. Uh, you can find some of that stuff elsewhere on, on Faith Roots. On the publications page, there's a, uh, an e-book, Marriage at Work. But when we look at Christ and the church, and when we look at human marriage, The emphasis that we place is often on what are the wives to do? What is this submission thing all about? And for some people, uh, they will go into lots of detail about what this means about whether wives are allowed to speak in church, whether the wives are allowed to go to work, how decision-making is meant to work in the family, how much authority does the husband have. That's why they put the emphasis. Uh, to make sure that husbands are being heads and exercising their spiritual authority in the home. And others will counter that because that doesn't fit with our contemporary understanding of life and relationships and that does rather seem to go against what we've learned about equality doesn't it and uh, so they will spend a lot of time trying to show why ephesians 5 doesn't mean wife submit to husband and why husbands aren't the heads but the whole emphasis is on trying to work out who is boss who is in charge Earlier this year, I spoke to Elise Fitzpatrick, who's written a book with um, Eric Schumacher, um, and, and they've written a book on Jesus and gender. And, and they said in that book, we've got to get away from this who is boss mentality. And I think that the reason we've got into that kind of mentality is because we have put all of the attention on what is actually just one verse. It's a verse that does need to be paid attention to in Ephesians 5. But Paul spends more time talking to husbands. And so I want to suggest that before we even start thinking about what is asked of wives, I want to speak particularly to men and to husbands and to elders in the church. Before we give our attention to that, we need to make sure that we have properly grasped and understood and applied in our lives. Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Are our lives and our relationships, our marriages, characterised by sacrificial love? Until they are. We can't be talking about what is expected of those that we are called to love. Husbands, love your wives. In a Bible study a few years back, we were looking at this passage and I asked the group if they could sum up what Paul was saying and one person did it brilliantly. They said, Paul is saying, husbands, completely with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, 
your whole body, love your wives, husbands, love your wives and wives, let them And if we put the emphasis on what the wife is meant to do, that might suggest that we've also put the emphasis in terms of Christ and the church, the bride and her groom, on the bride, on the church, on us, and what we are meant to do for God. And the New Testament is clear that until we've got a, a proper sense of Christ's love for us, of his grace, of his compassion, of his mercy, of his care, of his sovereign love for us, and of his sacrificial love for us, his death on the cross on our behalf. Until we've got that, we are never going to grasp what our responsibility in the relationship is as the church. But when we do get it, when we get how much Jesus loves us, then our response of worship and gratitude and love back to him will come into place. The jigsaw pieces will start to fit together. Husbands love your wives. Wives let them. Now, if that is a mystery, but Paul is talking about Christ and the church. Then what is the big application for us as believers today, probably not just from Ephesians, not just from the Song of Songs, but from the whole of the Bible? What are we meant to get when we hear preaching every Sunday? What are we meant to get when we open the Bible and do our, our, our daily Bible readings, our daily quiet times? It's this. Know, understand, believe how much Christ loves the church. Know, believe, trust, accept, recognize, grasp that Christ loves you. And let him. And so the Song of Songs tells this beautiful love story, the story of of a lover who loves his beloved and a beloved who lets him it opens with these words song of songs which is solomon so this is uh, written by solomon uh, and i know contemporary literary critics and biblical critics uh, question the authorships of the books of the Bible. I, I see no reason to. Is Solomon the the wise king with a lot of actually negative experience of love and relationships because of his failures? But failures. But writing about it from God's inspiration. Song of Songs, verse one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. 
we will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. It is only right that they adore you. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedah, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with beautiful jewellery, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewellery for you, scented with silver. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending a night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me, in the vineyards of Engedi. And what I want to highlight, just the one thing I want to highlight today from the song, just the one thing to get is this. When you start to read the song, modern translations have helpfully uh, put some subheadings in to make sure we get this. The song has three different voices here. There's a voice of the man, of the beloved who is wooing so the the voice of the lover who is wooing his beloved of Solomon the king who calls this woman his beloved his bride close to him into relationship with him and there's the voice of the woman of the bride of the beloved as she expresses her love her desire for the king and then you've got the chorus if you like the the young women the companions the bridesmaids they're speaking out their encouragement to the bride and their praise of the bridegroom as well and here in the song it's very clear that we have the one the bridegroom, the, the husband, the lover, who seeks to love his bride, and the beloved, the bride, who lets him. I want you to pause this morning. Or afternoon or evening, whenever you're listening in. At times it can feel like the Christian life gets dry. 
It's all about the activity of mission of all the things that need to be done to keep a church running and the part that we play in it. Uh, that challenge of going and preaching the gospel and those things are important. No, but there is a risk at times that we can lose that sense of intimacy or it can feel like things are running low in our lives, like we are dry and thirsty. Maybe that you feel like that, particularly particularly as what often happens over the summer with churches is that church activity drops down. So maybe there's been less opportunities for you to gather with your church family. Uh, maybe over the past two or three years as we've been through a, a pandemic uh, and it's been harder to have fellowship. Uh, and some of the things that used to play a bigger part of our church services still aren't playing the big part that they used to in terms of joyful worship and praise because we've felt nervous about getting back to full noisy singing. And all of that experience may leave you feeling a little bit dry and distant. Maybe what God's Word, what the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs can help us to do is to find again that intimacy, that first love, not dependent on the emotions of some worship. Some worship is great, it's important, we need it. Not dependent on what is happening with other people, but just coming back. And remembering again how much Jesus loves us. And we, we know that. Then we can respond in praise. The praise, yes, of gathered worship and song, but also the praise of how we live our lives. So that our work, even our recreation, our family time become part of the song. Uh, out, of, out of interest, um, uh, incidentally here, uh, the bit in Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives comes at the end of a long list of instructions that arise out of the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and then the response is meant to be thanksgiving and singing and song and submitting. marriage, that your family life, your vacational calling as a, as a single person, those things are meant to be song, our hearts are meant to sing. Christ loves you. Will you let him?